Trigger warning, this podcast contains a deep discussion about grief and loss, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of Behind the Mic, a Vent music podcast series hosted by me, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with artists across different music scenes in the UK and beyond. We talk about their musical journeys, their artistry, and most importantly, the person behind the mic. I'm a big fan of the indie dance scene and have been since my early primary school days when it was the first music scene I got into. I especially love it when any band chucks in some synths and some feel-good dance vibes. One band in particular caught my ear and I had to get them on the pod. Harry and Tom are the Knight Society. The pair met at Sixth Form College where they both studied music technology together. After trying and then veering away from the punk scene, they settled on this synth-focused, dreamy genre of dance music they are currently banging out on a regular basis. In this episode, I talked to the duo about how the band started and how its sound evolved, taking criticism in the industry and how to distinguish constructive feedback from snooty dismissals, as well as the impact that comparison culture and the streaming wars have had on both Harry and Tom's mental health. We also talk about Tom's journey of self-discovery and the creative drain he experiences when he comes back from university. And for Harry, we discuss the impact of his mum and dad's separation, which happened to him when he was four years old, how his granddad took on that main paternal figure and the impact that his loss and that grief had on him and his mental health. So get yourself comfy and have a listen as I go behind the mic with Tom and Harry from the Knight Society. Harry, Tom, welcome to Behind the Mic, lads. Thank you so much for coming on and letting me go behind the mic with both of you. How are we getting on, boys? How are we? Yeah, thank you so much for having us. I really appreciate it. I'm, I'm doing well, thank you. Yeah, me too. Great. Thank you for having us. We're looking forward Amazing. to it. Amazing. I haven't done a three-person pod in a while and it's online, so... I'm excited to explore both these journeys and hopefully there will be no technical glitches. <laughs> <laughs> so without further ado, boys, shall we just start the show? Yeah, let's do it. Great idea. Let's start behind the mic as we always do, chaps, by talking about your music journey. So I ask all my special guests this question first. Harry, let's start with you. Can you tell me how your love affair with music began? Who were some of the artists you listened to growing up and what impact did they have on you and your mental health? And maybe also when you first started singing or playing instruments? Yeah, yeah, great question. There's a couple of kind of key memories that I really, really have. I think one, I had like a my first tape player. I had like an old mixtape that had, I think it was Don't Stop Believing, wow. Sympathy for the Devil, and then We Don't Have to Take Our Clothes Off, Jermaine Stewart on. I rinsed that tape for like nine <laughs> years and absolutely adored it. And then one of the first records I got that my mum also used to have one in the car all the time was A Guide to Love, Loss and Desperation. Um, oh, by the one classic. Person. Yeah, We're the same that, age. That I think that's when it started, the, the, indie, the, yeah. the, indie, the indie phase. Oh, it was beautiful. It was beautiful, yeah. Tom, how did it start for you? I didn't really sort of have like a music identity for a really long time. And I think I probably got a bit angsty in like my teenage years. And I started listening to a lot of pop yes. punk. And that was sort of, yes. <laughs> sort of learned bass playing along to like Holiday by Green Day. And all those sort of Green Day Fall Out Boy albums was sort of just what I'd listened to for a while. And then it wasn't really until I really met Harry and met 
people like him that sort of would challenge my musical taste and sort of said, listen to this. How about you don't listen to the same album on repeat that I sort of started listening to more. Really, really enjoyed. At that point, it was almost sort of throwback indie, going back to those sort of old uh, Wombats yeah. albums. Yeah, I, I'm still absolutely in love with yeah, all that so stuff. The world that lay outside Kerrang and Scuzz TV. <laughs> <laughs> I saved it. You did save me, yeah. Oh, good, heady days, heady days of all time low. Di Maria Count Me In being oh. played on repeat. Heady days, oh. boys. <laughs> I wouldn't change oh, it for honestly, the world. wouldn't change it. <laughs> How did you both meet then? And what was the inspiration behind the name The Night Society? Because I understand, Harry, you originally asked Tom to join your punk band. Is that right? Or was it a pop punk band? What was it? Was it <laughs> was it neck deep vibes or was yeah. it more Evanescence? It was just much worse than both. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I'd, I'd been in a band for a couple of years all throughout high school. You know, like a, it was a proper my first band. And yeah, it was pretty punky. We thought we were really good. It was only punk because none of us could play in time. Um, but then, uh, yeah, I spoke to Tom. I met Tom at Sick Form. We got on really well and we started having these great conversations about music and started writing together. And yeah, he joined that band and we started to turn that one around a little bit. But we knew that we were heading off to a similar place in uni. So we started low-key cheating on that band and writing on the side. And that started Night Society. We used to call it the Bad Night Society because instead of going out, Tom would come over. We'd watch like Zombievers or Black Sheep. I don't know what any like, of those proper are. Proper class, awful <laughs> films. The like, worst, like, like low budget. Right. Yeah. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that vibe, that vibe. We'd get drunk, we'd order pizza and then we'd write indie bangers. And then that, we were like, so we changed that. When we started releasing stuff and writing more stuff, we were like, yeah, that's that's The, the Night society, society sounds better yeah, than the bad. It's got more of a professional ring than the bad Night Society, to be fair. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we were like, yeah, let's take the bad out and there you go. And how would you describe Cashing. the Night Society sound, Tom, then, for the listeners who've never heard of you? Is indie dance too simplistic? Maybe. I, I think that there's a lot. That's definitely where uh, it comes from, is our sort of love of, of indie music and that sort of guitar driven sound that um is still you know amazing but i think we have come a lot further as musicians and songwriters and we love sort of throwback 80s you found uh, a synth throwback wave? 80s sound oh Absolutely, don't get yeah. me started on synthwave <laughs> <laughs> i think actually we can sort of take it back to harry got given a juno 6 one of the loveliest synthesizers going in the world from that we started building a new sounds from that and that's sort of given us this new sort of identity of a bit synth pop sort of alt pop sound so sort of steering away from guitar-based indie to this new 80s inspired harry always sort of describes it as dance floor indie which i really yeah, like 100 uh, you can definitely hear that you know pulsing throughout your records how much do you take then as inspiration from say the all pop scene so like early 1975 but then the whole scene that they spawned you know lamy and loud and people like that and then how much do you take from Synthwave and well I guess the obvious example is the Midnight but other bands of that ilk is there a ratio or is it just taking is it just a smorgasbord basically I find it hard to not take inspiration from anything I listen to even if I absolutely hate it your brain is taking inspiration from it being like I'm inspiring you to not do this <laughs> like but whatever we listen to me and Tom are always sending each other tracks and we're always like absolutely love this absolutely love this one of the key artists, I think, for our synth stuff is Roosevelt. Mm. An absolutely amazing artist. That's a lot of house um, stuff as well, though, Roosevelt, his, to be fair. Yeah, his, his sound design, but, like, fundamentally, there's, like, a 
beautiful pop song underneath all those synths. Uh, I think we, we really took inspiration from that. It's like we can get some crazy sounds, but have a catchy hook in there and it's, it's super yummy. Mm. We're going to address the elephant in the room early on, boys, because this is something you wanted to talk about, which was COVID and how for a long time it had crippled the music and arts industries. But in many ways, ironically, for you as a band, it was the spark that ignited some momentum in the band. Would that be accurate? And do you feel almost guilty about that? Yeah, I feel so bad. Like when you're going to gigs now, like when everything's opened up and like you're having chats with your mates and bands and they're, they're all like, oh yeah, it was a it was a really difficult year. It was a really difficult year. Yeah. Like, it was such a difficult year, but like it was the best year we had as a band. <laughs> so I we're, shouldn't like, laugh, but turns out, it, it, it's funny. Yeah, it's just like, if you take me and Tom out of the same room, yeah, we work a lot better. <laughs> yeah, we started releasing. We had the time just to really put our focus into finishing those tracks and getting them out. And we, we got really lucky. We got some backing from Spotify. We had some really nice people get in touch and we started speaking to um, Close Up, the booking agency. And yeah, it really kicked things off for us. It, it was great. I think we were both in a point where uh, I was like, working at a studio. So I had sort of very little spare time. Harry, we were working two part-time jobs at the time before COVID. And we were sort of filling in band stuff when we could. <laughs> we had no time really was the point. And then lockdown came and obviously a really difficult time for a lot of people but we finally had time to sort of work on our music develop our sound more and actually because we weren't worried about doing our job every day or making a living we were sort of able to just dedicate time to music and that was a really really good time for us mm. creatively. Do you think it strengthened think. your friendship? Oh definitely definitely and also it strengthened our writing mm. sometimes we'd write in a room and we'd reach a wall and we just wouldn't be able to get any further because both of us would want to take it in a slightly different direction. And lockdown forcing us to be in separate places and write and um, distance made us get over that. We became so much better at finding the middle ground or appreciating each other's ideas and taking it further than we would have before with no one getting grumpy. And that's carried through as well. Like since lockdowns, like our, our writing together, it's so much more communal than it used to. Whereas before, like, I'd take a track to Tom and be like, what do you think of this? Should we make some changes? And then we'd play it and then it was, would kind of be it. Whereas now it's, we're both involved in the whole process together the whole way. Because obviously we both have different strengths and we bring them out of each other, I think, which is really mm. nice. I want to come to you, Tom, when it comes to, you know, issues in the industry and questions that you wanted to answer because the first one was about live performance in the stage. Now, you've never experienced stage fright, but it has taken you a while to sort of grow into feeling comfortable on stage and creating that stage persona can you chart that journey for me and how it shaped your mental health as well yeah so I think when everyone sort of first gets on stage in their sort of first band it's like in an open space at the back of a pub or something like that you sort of I know definitely for me it was something that uh, it wasn't natural because I'd sort of spent all sort of my time you know practicing my instrument working on songs with friends and stuff like that and then you're put in this environment where now you have to perform and that's not something I don't think you learn in like a band practice and however good you are at your instrument that performance thing is something that takes a while and at the start I think that's definitely a really scary moment and I think years and years I've sort of been on stage just really timid because you know a lot of the people in the audience when you start as well are your friends uh, and they know who yeah, you, you are. Yeah you don't let them down uh, as well yeah. You don't let them down you don't want to sort of do things on stage that they'll come to you afterwards and go that was silly <laughs> <laughs> why are you jumping up and down like an idiot and I think uh, it, it's taken time to gain confidence in that respect and start to sort of let my hair down 
and start sort of jumping around. And I think performing with Harry has been a really good help for that because he goes absolutely crazy <laughs> on stage. And it means that I can do some silly things. I can sort of try out, oh, I'll do a bit of a, a bit of a dance over here. And it doesn't matter what I do because people are yeah, your at bar's Harry not as high. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no yeah, I think I, I've really enjoyed recently coming into my own in that regard, and I've really enjoyed getting on stage after lockdown a lot more than I did before. Yeah, because wh- whatever I'm doing, like I'll, I'll always be doing something far more silly. So someone <laughs> <laughs> has nothing to worry about. Can you both talk to me about your first ever live performance as the Night Society? Then you know where was it? How did it go? What was that mental process before you went on stage? And yeah, just tell me a little bit about that. Either of you can answer this one. That's pretty brutal, to be honest. We were very smart chaps and we got offered a tour in Holland and we were like, yeah, let's do it. Let's just go to Holland with a band that we were quite good friends with. We hadn't finished a set, really. It was very, very early days of TNS but like we weren't going to turn down the show so we were finishing the set on the tour bus um, I think it was one of the most nervous I've been in my life because as we were walking on stage we're like so how how, how are we going to finish <laughs> that is song? flying by the seat of your <laughs> pants literally <laughs> yeah but it was a really great really great experience it was the first time we'd been on stage with um the other two guys who are playing with us at the moment it was just a really nice atmosphere and also it was kind of the same experience like if we mess up in Holland no one's gonna know like we're gonna come back to England and no one's gonna know but um we played the first night in Dordrecht and it was a great atmosphere great stage we had a really good time yeah I have fond memories of it and then after that night we were like ah so that's what the set looks like and uh fixed it for the next one I always get my artists on behind the mic guys to talk about one bad set or performance as well in their life and most importantly so we can normalize making mistakes for our listeners what they learned from it. So is there one story in particular that stands out that you can share? I've got one in mind, Tom. I imagine it was worse for you than it was for me. Oh, no. <laughs> do tell, do tell. Is, it, uh, is this Newcastle? No, no, I'm, oh. I'm chatting about the, the night I had a prophet tantrum. Oh, oh, yeah. No, this was a gig in Guildford, which was where we were both living at the time. And pretty regularly, we were sort of gigging probably every month at that point. And we'd just gone and done our, our sound check at the venue. And I think we were walking back to Harry's house because you sort of left a cable or something at your house. And all the way back, I had to listen to Harry have a mini breakdown and, and just tell me, this is it. I can't do music anymore. Uh, because I think we were sort of unconfident about a song. We hadn't finished writing it and we decided, oh, let's play it. And Harry was getting so, so nervous and so worked up about it. And I had to convince him that, tonight you're playing the show you have to play the show because we've said we'll play the show and after that fine you can quit music that was the <laughs> only way I was going to get him to play that set and he did it was a really good set and afterwards he was like oh that was really good wasn't it maybe we'll play some more music <laughs> it was a real roller coaster. No, it sounds like it <laughs> yeah before the show like we were playing this song and like I never started as a singer I was always a guitarist but then I kind of found myself being the only singer in the band and I'd always write lyrics and write melodies but like I never really thought of myself as a singer until possibly like the last year so I've always been really really self-conscious about my voice and there was this new song and I just, I just couldn't feel like I could do it justice and it was really really playing on my mind and I was like I can't do it I can't do it Tom this is it I, why am I putting myself through this and I was having a proper proper paddy about it but the way that I always work on stage is I, I get really 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 nervous before mm. every show 
really nervous but as soon as i step on stage it just turns into pure adrenaline so once i was up there having just the best time adrenaline and after i was like oh my god this is amazing we are gods <laughs> like but yeah so tom has to deal with that <laughs> most yeah. most shows but that one in particular was a was a real low than a very high <laughs> conversely then what has been the best show you've ever done and what did that do for your professional self-worth oh. and mental health what do you think the best one is there's some deep I thinking really going enjoyed... on here, listeners. You can't see it. There's some deep thinking. Uh, I really enjoyed Soma. Have we had um, a good show? We played <laughs> a <laughs> festival with uh, for Close Up a couple of weeks ago. And that was our first one back since lockdown. And that was just an amazing feeling. No, that's I true. Probably I think probably Holroyd. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we did a... When we were living in Guildford, we did a show at just the pub back room. But we hired it out. We made it free for everyone. It was like our first birthday or something. Yeah, um, first, yeah, a year since our first gig was. Yeah, it was a year since our first gig. So everyone came down. The place was packed, which we didn't expect. We gave out party hats to everyone. And it was kind of the first time that like people had sung our tracks back to us. And it was just such a nice experience. Everyone was just having a really good time. Like it was a lot of mates there, a lot of people we didn't know too, but it was, yeah, really good fun, really good fun. Probably wasn't our best set, but oh, really, vibe-wise, <laughs> really sloppy, lovely. probably. But it was just a, an amazing time, and I think that's really what makes a set good. It's not how well you play the songs, mm. or it's all about the audience and how you feel mm. playing. Before yeah. we move on to issues in the industry, which outlet out of producing, songwriting, or playing instruments has the biggest impact on your mental health? Tom, do you want to go first? I think for me, I really enjoy producing. I think that what I really love doing. And, and at university, I, I did a course where I worked with a lot of producers. And a lot of my course mates were producers. A lot of my housemates were producers. So a lot of the time, I was getting exposed to a lot of my peers' work and sort of hearing their productions, things like that. And a lot of the time, it's quite hard to not compare yourself to other mm. people in, in that regard. These are the, the loveliest people you could ever meet. But when you hear how good their stuff is, you sort of feel like this is better than I can do this is sort of above my level and it really does have a sort of it definitely had an effect on me of thinking I maybe I'm not actually cut out for this but that also I think was able to sort of drive me it has meant that I've worked on my production a lot and I've got to the point where I'm really happy with the, the sort of stuff I do and I really get a lot of pleasure of when Harry sends me a song that he's written working on that for a long time and turning it into like a single and, and I really get a lot of enjoyment mm. out of that and Harry what do you think what is your outlet of choice would you say i think it's definitely writing for me because when i write it's kind of a chaos of ideas and then it's finding like the song in those ideas and a lot of the time lyrically i think it's stuff that i don't even realize that i'm processing or thinking about until it's kind of in a song and then it's like it's there and i think that's quite therapeutic let's move on to issues in the industry now so you've already talked a little bit about comparison culture tom but streaming and the streaming wars and rumination about the streaming wars was something that you both wanted to talk about. And this is something I've talked to with actually a, a few guests already. I've talked to Harry from Victor's about it. So Harry, I believe it affects you. Well, I don't want to compare, but I believe it affects you a bit more than Tom. So can you just talk about why that is and what the source of it was? Because I think it was around a, a single that you put out called Believe, wasn't it? Yeah, it's one of those things because the way that we consume music is just so different now with streaming it can get you out to so many people and it can get you instant validation, which is amazing. That's fantastic. 
but at the same time like it can be so randomized our first single got like 50k streams or something and we were absolutely buzzed with that and then our second single it's the one that got picked up by spotify it got like six um editorials i think it's sitting on like what is it 300 and something thousand streams quite a few and we were really really excited about that i think it you put a lot of expectation mm. on yourself for the ones that follow that it does feel like you're kind of a failure if you don't get it again but obviously because it's so random and it's kind of not how it's a way of consuming music but it's not everything i think it was really difficult especially in lockdown because we didn't have live we didn't have like going into the studio. We didn't have like all of the kind of normal things you, you didn't do have a as balance, a band. Did you? So the no. only thing yeah. you had, so yeah, like the only thing you had to judge yourself on were numbers, which like obviously shouldn't be <laughs> what it's all about. I got very obsessed with Spotify for artists and checking it and seeing how everything was performing and if it wasn't performing as well as I was hoping to, getting quite upset about it, especially with the single that came out after that didn't do as well on spotify but like we were much prouder of and i think it's it's balancing like numbers on spotify are amazing they're, they're a fantastic thing you're getting to great people it means people love your song but for some of the ones that i think tv dinner which is one of my favorites it's only got like eight thousand streams i've had more people message me and come up to me after shows being like i, absolutely yeah, I think that's your song. best record but like personally. it doesn't ref- <laughs> oh thank you very much man thank you very much but yeah it's like on stats wise it looks like a failure compared to the others and i i think it was really hard to keep that in mind during mm. lockdown so it, it was difficult it, it did make you feel like you just you weren't as good as you were then but then i think we me and tom worked a lot on trying to shift that perception of being like no we're really happy with this track the people we are actual fans not just random people streaming love this music and we're making it because we love it and Spotify is just a way mm. to reach people. It's it's not a way to judge yourself. Do you think you're able to emotionally detach from it now then at least? Or better than you were before? I think I, I couldn't say that I'm, I could do it fully. Like, I, but you're uh, getting there. Yeah, I'm, I'm better at handling yeah. it. It's not everything. And I think it's well, as soon as you realise like it's, it's not everything. It's so much easier to cope with. Like, oh, it's a shame. Like, could have done better. Could have done worse. But like, when you know it's like, if 10 people listen to that song, but absolutely adore it, that means far more to me than 2,000 people who have listened to it. Like yeah, and also 10 times. people who go and see your gig or buy your merch, which makes you a lot more money than streams, which people also it, don't yeah, realise. You can get 50k streams and earn <laughs> you literally shillings, which is what Spotify yeah. pays you in. It was like 80 quid or something. I don't know. It was it was br- it Yeah, exactly. Great. People don't realise. They think, oh, 50k streams. You must have got thousands. No, 0.002 pennies per stream. <laughs> Yeah, it is, it is pretty yeah. brutal. Do you think, I mean, it's similar to, you know, I guess, social media and dating apps and all this sort of stuff. Do you think these algorithms create like a chemical imbalance in your brain where you go on these extreme highs and massive lows? I think so. And I think the other thing is expectation of constants. You're always expected to mm. be on it. You're always expected to be on it. You're always expected to be performing at what you are putting out it's like spotify the algorithms favor people who are releasing every two three months but like if you look back like bands don't release for like a couple of years i think you're losing that time to like really work on your craft and like bring out the next Mm. thing so when you're trying to like break through 
the algorithms are favoring people who are just yeah and people are putting out like putting 20 plus out. track albums like I, it's a big bugbear of mine in the hip-hop especially hip-hop industry where you know artists mm. are just putting out 25 track albums 30 track albums i remember one of the chris brown albums was like 50 tracks deluxe version i was like no one is listening God. to this but i always say as a mantra if you put out an 18 to 23 track album if 19 of those aren't bangers i am not buying it <laughs> I, yeah, that's bad. If you've got that's three bad. duds and like 19 bangers, cool, I'm on it. But if you've got like eight hits and it's like a 24-track album, I'm not going to buy that album. <laughs> no. All killer, no exactly. killer. So, yeah. But it's one of those things. I think that pressure to always be there, especially with social media, like Instagram is so performative. Mm. It's so putting up a face and like, this is me living my best life. And to have that pressure to be doing that all the time just to keep your engagement up, I think it's quite a lot to cope with, especially like me and Tom are both quite shy people. So like we don't have that uh, main character energy of I'm going to talk to the camera and I think I look beautiful today. So here's a picture of my face. Like we're we're not that person. So I think it's dealing with those pressures to always be there at your best. 100%. Tom, I want to come to you now because feedback and criticism is something that you wanted to talk about. And it's something that, you know, every band has to deal with in the music industry. And, and music is such a subjective art, you know, it's impossible to avoid. Like, for example, I absolutely loved the new Tion Wayne album that came out. I thought like it was one of the best albums of the year, but then I heard loads of people saying like it was inconsistent and whatever, whatever, whatever. So for you, how has it impacted you and how do you balance constructive, creative feedback with perhaps the snootier, dismissive stuff you might get? I think it's really difficult. And I think it's a skill to sort of learn when you should really sort of take feedback on board and when listening to the feedback is actually going to be damaging. I mean, we've you know, had experience where we've sent our tracks to people and they've come back and gone, I don't like this. This isn't, <laughs> this isn't good. And that can instantly be something that's really sort of damaging and really sort of hits yeah. you home because you're putting out something and someone just going... Especially if they're gatekeepers as well. Good, Exactly, yeah. But then I think people you work with and friends are going to be the people that give you sort of the best feedback. Obviously, some of them are just going to pat you on the back and say, well done regardless, but we're lucky that we work with some people that will some tell brutal, mates. <laughs> Yeah, six song, really bro. Classic mates, every single exactly. message. Yeah, six song, bro. Love that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so we've got people that will just tell us, you know, this is great regardless. And that's sort of just nice to hear. But we've got people that, you know, we know when they're being truthful and they can give us real good feedback. And we know that we should be listening to that sort of stuff when it comes to sort of making musical decisions rather than when someone goes, this is bad. We shouldn't take on that feedback and stop making music is, I think, uh, yeah. important takeaway. I don't, I don't know if this has happened to you, but I'm thinking about it now. Has there ever been a, a time where you know, you've gotten feedback from either an artist or a gatekeeper and they've, and you've gotten the sense that almost they've been like deliberately negative perhaps because they're managing other art. Do you know what I mean? I'm trying to think of like the really inner politics, like someone trying to put another artist down because they're managing other artists. They're trying to big them up. Do you know, I don't think it's, I don't, it's probably not happened, but do you think that does happen? I think it can happen, but in a slightly less direct way, the way that it can happen is if you're, playing with a band for example you're on before them and like they make no effort to even acknowledge you exist i think it's, it's that sort of mind game like we, me and tom love meeting people and like we love going up and chatting to people and we try to make sure we see every band we play with because it's just you know supporting yeah. people and it's great to hear new stuff 
And I think when you're playing with bands who are like, I want nothing to do with any of the other bands, I think that's like a slight mind game of we're better than you. So we we'll talk about which bands do that off air. <laughs> <laughs> None of the ones we've played with. <laughs> Harry, for you, the concept of rejection came up in our chat when we spoke off air and how that plays into your band experience. So I guess there's no rule book for how you deal with it when you come into the industry. And a lot of the time, you know, much like podcasting, it very much feels like the Wild West. So how do you deal with rejection and does it toughen you up or do you need those support networks to be able to have that resilience first? Oh, I definitely need the support networks. I suck at dealing with rejection. So like Tom's great. Tom will reassure me a lot. And so like some of my friends and family, it's just one of those things, isn't it? Like music is, like you said, it's so subjective. You're going to get rejections all the time. You get more rejections than opportunities. It's just the way it is. I think it is just building up that strength over time. Like it's just having confidence in yourself. At first, rejections can kind of shake you and make you question, like Tom was saying, like, oh wait, am I am I good enough? Is this really something I can do? As long as you're confident with what you're doing, you're proud of it, makes you happy, the rejections don't matter. It's gonna come. And if it doesn't, if you're making music and someone somewhere is having a crap day but they listen to your track and it makes them feel a bit better or, or they're like just having a dance with their friends that's what it's all about and it's when you shift your focus to if some people out there are enjoying my music does it really matter if I've got this rejection from like a certain blog or a certain magazine or something that is just for some random promo that you feel like you need exactly Tom I want to come back to comparison culture a little bit because you've covered it already but you were also nominated for a pop production award at your, your university during your final year. So how big a moment was that for you? And did it alleviate some of that comparison culture or anxiety or, or even imposter syndrome? Did you feel validated, basically? Yes. And thank you for bringing no it worries. up. No worries. I'm a good listener. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thank you. No, I think that was a really nice moment because, as I was saying, for me, I definitely compare a lot. I do it sort of musically listening to other bands going, these guys are fantastic. I could never write a song that good. Especially when Harry writes a really good song, I'm like, ah, he's so good at writing music. I can't do this. Uh, and then being constantly surrounded by people that are working on music and making great singles, it was, you know, it was hard not to compare yourself, hard to not feel like an imposter sometimes when I'm sort of feel like I'm not making stuff of the same quality. You know, it was really nice to sort of every now and again get some appreciation, get sort of a bit of feedback going. Uh, this is great and Harry's really good at giving feedback really good at telling me that he likes what I've done and no it's it's really important I think to have that feedback to let you know you've done a good job <laughs> because otherwise it does get quite hard and you sort of start questioning stuff but no I, I, I feel like I've had a good level of feedback and I'm quite happy now well, that's good which, which that's is good, good. Before we reflect on your music journey boys I want to talk about your discography it's not massively long so we're gonna dive into a couple tracks so the first track you ever put out was a song called do you feel at home which was last year i think how do you reflect on that track now are you as proud of it as you were back then or not i think so i have a tendency to once i've written something new i absolutely hate anything that's come before a lot of artists um, feel like that to be fair mate <laughs> oh my god i get told off a lot by tom <laughs> by being like no harry you have to finish these old ones these are good ones and i'm like no <laughs> but yeah i think it's the first time we properly released and so i'm, I'm always going to be proud of that and it's such a fun track to play live and i think it was such a special experience for us that i, I think i'll always treasure it as like oh that 
that's what kicked it all off for us. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I think I'm, if anything, more proud of it now. Even if musically, I'm listening to it now, there's some things that like I would change or I'd want to improve. But like, yeah, I think I'm more proud of it than ever just because it's more of like a, just a really special mm. memory. Can you tell me about Believe as a record now, so not the reaction to it? What does that song mean to your mental health? Believe's always been pretty feel-good for me, which is just nice. I don't often write feel-good tracks, and it's just got that feeling. And knowing how much people like it when we're playing it is so fun. The song means that it's a very nostalgic. The journey lyrically is a very nostalgic journey going through some memories of mine that I hadn't thought about for a long time until lockdown. And it was a really nice journey to go on. And I think the song really reflects that. It's got kind of like that nostalgic, kind of like angsty feel yeah. to it. And it's a cracking mm. riff, if I say so. Did you try song. and did you <laughs> deliberately name it Believe to piggyback off some share listeners? Yeah, it, exactly that. So people looking for share <laughs> might accidentally find us. That was number one. We want to. We're <laughs> exactly, Shay. Exactly. And listen, listen, mate. Well, she will definitely won't listen to this, but you know, on the off chance, yeah. <laughs> you never know. TV dinner was the track that really brought you to my attention, boys. So, Harry, you said you're really proud of this track as well. Can you tell me why that was? I think it was a very different approach to this track that we that we normally take. Me and Tom had so much fun making it. I think a lot of the time, like especially when you're in the final stages of making a single, like when you're going through mixes and mastering, you do have a lot of doubts and it can be quite stressful getting it into the place that you feel like, okay, this is the one we want to release. But we didn't really have that with TV Dinner. Like we just had so much fun at every stage and obviously nothing else was happening in the world at the time that we were recording it. So it's just, yeah, just so much fun. And lyrically, I really enjoy it. I think it's fun. It's a very conversational style. The fact uh, one of Tom's housemates dropped the sax solo on it. And I think that's like a musical bucket list that we've always wanted to tick off. And yeah, and Dom just did an in incredible job. Let's reflect on your journey now. So one thing I always try and break down on Behind the Mic Boys are the myths people have about the industry and expose the realities for everyday bands and artists, especially those with mental health implications that fans or even friends and family might not see. And you've already alluded to it a little bit. You know, Harry, you said you worked two part-time jobs for the pandemic. So can either of you tell me about some of the examples of the realities you've experienced, whether that's pre-COVID or after it or during it? I think one of the main things for me is Obviously, I absolutely adore music and I absolutely adore what we do. But sometimes it is mm. work. I think a lot of people sometimes don't see it as work because it can be so fun. And because it is such a creative and awesome process, people don't realize how much work 100%. goes into it. So when I had three jobs last year and had no spare time and then I'd come home to do music, it's four jobs yeah. like uh, coming home to do more work even though I was absolutely loving it it is still work and I think making sure that you can take the time to reflect and reset and do it as well as focusing on your music is great and I think the societal pressures of obviously making enough money to survive and live which is obviously getting harder and harder as things get more expensive to make sure that you can try and keep that balance is, is really mm. tricky. What about you, Tom? I think Harry's made it, that's a fantastic point of it. Just, it, it is just, you know, obviously Spotify wants to uh, like a release every two to three months and that is great, but to sort of 
push out that output of music is such like a without a label and, and without you know, sort of people behind you doing a lot of that work yeah you know exactly without you know any sort of financial stability because there's no way that in an ideal world me and harry would just write music every day that would be what we did all the time and you know we'd release a lot more music but we've got to sort of work and <laughs> it's uh you know I, I feel like there's constant pressure to be releasing music be working on music when you might want to have a break from be always on essentially doing yeah. actual work yeah exactly i, I think that uh, i think I, i've got better at sort of giving myself time to relax because they used to sort of be i would just sort of any sort of downtime it would just be right i'll do this music thing because that's what i do for fun that's my hobby when actually it's it's not like a relaxing hobby it's really is a, a job at the end mm. of the day and as a final question doing the band for as long as you both have what has it taught you about yourself do you think Sorry, just laughing at Tom's. That was face. a great <laughs> facial. If I could, if this pod was videoed, I would, I would clip that up straight away. <laughs> that, that was my bad. thinking face. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's taught me a lot about my priorities. The band is like the most important thing in my life, as well as like family and friends. And especially like over the last few years, it's really come to fruition and of realizing how much it does mean to me. I think that's taught me a lot. And your work, just to to pay your rent and stuff but like you're really like with whereas bands like you're working to like feel alive like have just the best time and I, I think that's something it's really taught me is that if you work hard with it you can have some amazing experiences and it yeah it's just great memories Tom I completely agree I think the highs of being in as a nice society have sort of really just sort of made it very clear that that's what I want to do it should be the number one priority in my life and I, I think that's a really nice sort of thing to have is to be sure of uh, what you're doing is what you want to be doing and I'm sort of able to commit to that but I think also it, it has taught me a lot to sort of care a lot less about what I think is going on around me uh, and I sort of learned from the comparison of comparing to other bands and things like that that that's not a, a way to be happy really and I should just be a lot more focused on what I'm doing. We've talked about your musical journeys, boys. Let's go behind the mic and talk about your own personal mental health journey. So, Harry, I'll start with you. I ask all my special guests this question first. Tell me about your early life, childhood, teenage years. And looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Harry we meet here? I think it's one of those things that at the time I didn't realise I was affected. I was so conscious of what everyone thought of me. But obviously I didn't realise that was anxiety. I was very performative mm. um, to try and I don't know, be the person people wanted me to be. I think that comes from, I don't know, maybe the like kind of entrenched needs to feel wanted that maybe came from my childhood. But yeah, I, I think that's something like as I grew up, I realised looking back that like I was struggling with these things. At the time, I just kind of thought that that was like, just a right of passage, yeah, like I probably thought. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You spoke about they're the people pleasing and you said that your parents divorce when you were very young, I believe four slash like five years old was the trigger for that. Yeah. How did that shape your life and your mental health going forward as a teenager? I think it's one of those things, isn't it? Like losing a parent in any way and not having that distance. Obviously, subconsciously, you know that there's no reason that you should blame yourself. But there is kind of a part of you that that thinks that obviously like your mind always drops to like the the worst case scenario 
And um, unfortunately, like I've seen less of my dad throughout my life since that point. And I think there's always that need to kind of feel like to be the best that I can be and that to try and please mm. people, like to make someone proud, I think is uh, a big motivator mm. for me, whether that's him or anyone really, just to kind of feel that kind of validation and just yeah. support. You told me you're more honest with your lyrics than you are with yourself. What did you mean by that? Yeah, I, I think it's one of those things that I don't consciously sit and think about how I'm feeling. I often like, because I'm just so busy, I kind of mm. like keep it bottled up. Not on purpose, it's just kind of like... It's, it's co- life, yeah, you know, you don't always, you can't always have yeah. time to vent. <laughs> it, exactly. I do struggle with that. And I think a lot of the time when I'm writing lyrically stuff's coming out that I haven't addressed personally like I haven't sat and thought about and then when I'm writing especially like in the music more than the lyrics as well I deal with a lot of emotions and I think a lot of it comes through in that song and then once I've finished a song it's kind of like I've talked about it now I've addressed what I've thought in it and when I finish it and listening to it it, it's kind of like a pinpoint in my mental health timeline or Uh, like a memory that I can really relate that Mm. to. When your mum and dad divorced, and obviously you said you lost regular contact with your dad and that presence in your life, your granddad took on the main paternal role in your life, Harry. So tell me about the relationship you had with him growing up and what kind of role model was he for you? Oh, he was the best. My granny and granddad lived next door. So they were always a big part of my life. And like my mum works in the hospital, so she's super busy. You know how busy NHS is. So yeah, he was awesome. And I, again, it's one of those horrible things. Hindsight is a beautiful thing. I probably never would have said at the time that he was my father figure and that he was my biggest male support in my life. But then after he, he died a couple of years ago, then I just realized like, oh, I haven't just lost my granddad. I kind of lost my second mm. dad. And I think that was pretty tough to deal with, especially because I was seeing less of my actual dad. It's the kind of like, oh, well, where am I at yeah. now? and realizing that I should have not should have appreciated it more at the time because obviously I appreciated it so much at the time but I was kind of wishing that I had the clarity of what that relationship actually Mm, was at the time like he wasn't just my granddad he was so much more than that knowing that at the time would have just been even more special saying what you just said there about basically how your granddad became your dad was that mindset at the start initially difficult to come to yeah yeah I still talk to my dad and he's he's great we just haven't seen each other really we just haven't just lives haven't really matched up he lives quite far away so obviously granddad just filled in that gap so that realization was tough because it wasn't losing a grandparent it it really felt like losing Mm. a parent and that obviously just sucks Mm. um so I think that realization of saying like, no, I, I haven't just lost my granddad. I've, I've lost like yeah. a dad it was really hard. Can you tell me about the grieving process that you went through when your granddad passed away and how did that shape you going forward? I think it made me appreciate little things a lot more. And like my mum is ill as well. And I, I think it's one of those things that just puts life in perspective, as I was saying earlier. In the, a beautiful way, nothing matters. <laughs> but like, at the same time, everything matters. Like if you're just walking down the street and I had it the other day, there was a leaf that was rolling across the road in time with a song. And I was like, 
that's awesome. And I just made a point to be like, oh, yeah, that's an amazing thing that happened in my day. Like, no matter how small it is. I think it's really made me appreciate those things because, like, you never know what can happen. And I don't know how I deal with grief, to be honest. I don't think I I know how I've mm. dealt with it or whether I have dealt with it. But it's definitely made me appreciate yeah. the stuff. Do you have, you know, one abiding memory of your granddad or a quote of his that, or a phrase that you keep with you? Is there a, a legacy within that? Oh, definitely. So many things. So many things I do now because of him. He always used to call me Elvis <laughs> when I started playing guitar. Uh, so every time I listen to Elvis, I always, always think of him. But yeah, I, I have so many memories. He worked at like the uh, bowls club as well. And I remember one time they were having some building work done there and he brought me along to help. And like as a kid, I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. I'm like shoveling sand <laughs> off a truck. This is so cool. I'm having the best time. And now I realize he's just, just got you hooked, like a sinker, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he taught me a lot about fixing things. And he was like such a great handyman. If something broke, he'd give a go at fixing it. And I've brought it in my life. Like if something's breaks, I'll give it a go anything and I, I think that's a really really useful life yeah. skill that um has saved me a lot of money <laughs> yeah exactly well. definitely for grief harry obviously parental grief is something monumental that happens to children or, or teenagers or even adults to be fair and i think everyone can at least understand the depth of trauma that can create but for grandparents mm. obviously i think there is an understanding that as people get older you know natural causes come into play and maybe People think that, you know, you're not as close to grandparents as you are to parents, which is a natural assumption. But for you, did that make it more difficult because you had such a close relationship with him? Yeah, I, I think so. I think you're right. Like, I think some people who maybe don't have as close a relationship with their grandparents don't understand the like the depths of your loss as much. But I think that's sometimes because they're often they didn't know them yeah, as, for sure. as long or maybe they've not really been in their lives as much but yeah I, I think obviously every relationship everyone has is different and I have such a big family like my granny's one of eight and all of my great uncles and aunts were like in my life from when I was a kid like we, we saw each other a lot so it, I do have a really close relationship with a lot of family yeah I, I think it it is difficult because not everyone understands the depths mm. of it. But at the same time, like everyone, obviously everyone's relationship is different. So I, I do kind of get it. But yeah, yeah, you're right. It, it mm. was tough. When I speak to guests about grief on this pod, mate, and I speak to loads of guests about grief, and I was quite shocked by how many conversations I've had about grief now, a few things come up. One is a perspective that grief is sometimes more stigmatized than mental health in some ways. Some ways it isn't, it isn't, but some ways it is. And also there's one that I found that's quite common where people place like a metaphorical ticking clock on your grief for you to kind of get over it and get back to normal in inverted yeah. commas. Are those things you've experienced or are there any others you, that you can share? 100%, 100%. And like, I feel like we kind of all do it, whether you mean to or not. If someone says they've lost someone, you ask them how they're feeling about it for a couple of months. And like you, you check in with them for a couple of months. And then you slowly start dying down that support. I think we all do. Not on purpose, but it, it just starts as your relationship kind of goes back to normal with a person. You don't really think of it as much. But I don't think grief is ever something that goes away, mm. to be honest. And it's kind of appreciating that. But I, I don't think grief is completely a negative thing mm. sometimes. Like 
you're just really missing someone. That's quite mm. nice. If your granddad was listening to this podcast, mate, and I'm sure he is somewhere, what do you think you would say <laughs> to him? And what do you think he would say to you? Would he say you can get back to shoveling some sand now? <laughs> probably. He'd probably be like, do some work. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think we'd probably go for a nice pint and a roast dinner and it would be awesome. Mm. What did that period of grief teach you about yourself? Cool. Um, I don't know. I guess how reliant I was on other people. Mm. In kind of an emotional sense. like uh, You kind of feel like you're all good. You're fine. You've got your life together. And then something like that can happen. You can be like, oh, I really haven't. <laughs> Just like, I really am going to miss that person's impact on my life. Mm. And that was such a huge part of it. And that it wasn't like me having my stuff together. It was people's support systems. Mm. It's great. Tom, I want to come to you now. So Harry, you can take a deep breath and relax. (laughs) 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 Tom, you said you had a pretty happy childhood, in fairness, and thankfully a good time in school too, which is not something I can say. However, you were quite an anxious child, I believe. I guess we all were at certain points, but how did that anxiety affect you growing up? And same question as Harry, who's the Tom we meet at this point? I think, as you said, yeah, I count myself extremely lucky in that everything at home has always been good and I've sort of got through life with sort of very little actual <laughs> tragedy or anything like that. But yeah, no, I think I'm, I've always just been, mostly during school, I think I've got a lot better, but I've always been quite self-conscious about, I think, partly sort of how I've looked and then a lot about sort of how people perceive me. I think I've always sort of, uh, I think throughout, uh, mostly school, I've just sort of been scared to do things that I've sort of enjoyed doing okay. without... I think you've got um, a Nathan Holt quality, to be fair, mate. <laughs> I have I have had... Is that yeah, Nicholas, Nicholas Holt, Holt, sorry. I've got the wrong name, yeah, but Nicholas yeah, Holt, I, yeah. I once, I think, because I was uh, a bit paler in school, I once got, I, you look like Nicholas Holt, but when he's a zombie... Oh, so they had to chuck in the insult afterwards. They, see, they saw the compliment. <laughs> see, that's when they fell down, because they saw the compliment. <laughs> Yeah, that that was a part of it where it, oh, great, oh, right, okay. <laughs> but no, I think um, mostly positive, but yeah, I think I think everyone has to get go through a bit of ridicule at school, otherwise, did you really go? Mm, well, exactly, exactly. Creative drain was something you wanted to talk about, Tom, and when we spoke off air, it was this idea that when you get back from university, you felt this real stupor or, or funk when you got back in regards to writing or I don't know, even life in general, can you tell the listeners a bit more about that? And what triggers that drain, do you think? For me personally, I spent a lot of time not believing it, but I am actually an extrovert. I'm just quite shy, (laughs) but I I really get a lot of my energy and a lot of like drive to do things from being with people. So when I sort of have been at university and living in shared houses, it's always, if I'm sort of bored, I'll just go out my room and start talking to someone get sort of a bit reinvigorated and then I can go back and, and be creative. And I think when I when I come home and now as I finish uni and I'm just living at home, you sort of go through long periods of sort of not having interactions with your peers. Mm. And for me, uh, I find that, that after a couple of weeks, that's it. <laughs> there are no creative juices mm. flowing at all. And I, I sort of, I can't get out of bed <laughs> for a while and I can't work and I don't do the things that I like doing because it's too much effort and and I describe it as a funk just because it's quite a sort of a, a small thing in the grand scheme of things but yeah it, it's just something that mm. wipes me out really I live on my own mate I've lived on my own for the last six months and I've read 16 books 
to keep my mind active because I'm such an extrovert. <laughs> so if that's a tip, please have it. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. No. <laughs> I mean, if you have the money for it, that's literally all I spend my money on now. Albums and books. <laughs> Nothing else. I've got a yeah, exactly. Could be yeah. a lot worse. <laughs> yeah. As a final question then, Tom, how have these experiences, I guess, taught you about yourself and how do you balance that introvert versus extrovert now? It's important. I used to sort of think, oh, I'll thrive if I work alone uh, and I don't sort of need anyone else. But I think it really has sort of just made me realise that even if it's not a long-term thing, I need to sort of have friends, have that support network around me that I can go, does anyone want to go for the pub for just a few hours? And so I can sort of just remember what it's like to be with people and talk to people which is I think so important I think over most of the lockdowns I was lucky enough to be living with people so I didn't really have to address that over the long term but I I can imagine that so many people went through an experience like that where they were just Mm. on their own for months and months and months without that option to go out and see people and I I have nothing but complete sympathy for those people because I don't think I could cope at all Mm. well with that sort of thing. As an extra additional question, and either of you can answer this question first, if you could go back and talk to that 15-year-old Harry who was struggling with fitting in or people-pleasing or the Tom who was figuring out who he was or maybe struggling with creative drain or struggling with his looks, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? I think just to unapologetically be yourself, which is so, like, obviously cliché. But at the same time, like those people we were stressing about people pleasing so much at that time, we're probably never going to. And they're all losers. They're all losers now. That's the real (laughs) answer. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's, that's what I (laughs) like. You build it up to be so much more than it is. But obviously in that microcosm, it feels like everything. But it's just way up like. Getting to know yourself is far more important in the long run than pleasing some geezer who likes football more than music, you know, like trying to fit in with people who were never going to be your people. And Tom, what about you? I think that's a really good point. I, I don't think there's any, you can't sort of go back to your past self and, and rationalise that, hey, this doesn't matter. This isn't important because in the moment yeah, it that's does. Yeah, world, isn't it? Yeah, I think yeah. you can say to someone, exactly, yeah. that's all you know and it's what you're going to go through. And I think really it's just stick at it because in a few years you'll be in a completely different world you'll have a better life view of what actually matters and you'll be a lot happier I think and I think most people get out of school and it's a much better world for them our final topic of conversation boys and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests it is a general natter and chat about mental health so firstly how would you say your mental health is at the moment? Harry, do you want to go first? I think it's better than it has been. I've started a new job. So I have one job, which is amazing. <laughs> so much better than three. <laughs> I've got a little bit of regularity to my life, which helps. And I'm really proud of the stuff me and Tom are making at the moment. Like you guys have got so much yummy stuff on the way. <laughs> um, and that's a nice feeling. Yeah, like I said, obviously you carry that grief with you. But I like to see as time goes on, I, I see it as a slightly more positive thing so yeah i feel like i'm, I'm in a Excellent. good place what about you tom i think in the short term not fantastic but i'm doing a massive job hunt i'm living at home i'm not seeing as many friends as normal and i'm sort of very conscious that this is like a, a small blip and that you know once things get rolling i'll be in a much better place and i'm 
doing all the good things. I'm going outside regularly. I'm working on some really nice music when I'm not sending out cold emails. But yeah, on the long term, pretty good. And I'm having the band helps as well, mate. Just remember that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Whenever Harry sends me a voice note of a (laughs) badly played out idea, but I can hear the gold in it. It always <laughs> makes my day. It's really nice. I, I literally message him until he validates me. <laughs> I'm like, Tom, Tom, got a new song. Tom, listen to the voice note. He's like, I'm out. And like, Tom, Tom, listen to the voice note. Tr- trust me. Listen I've to the started, voice note. Uh, I've started holding out validation. And I'll say, I'll listen to this song. I give you a validation once you've done this bit of admin work for me. <laughs> he always slacks on these things and he's off writing music. Like we a, had like a two-day standoff. Like I was like, no, I'm not going to send you that until you give me my validation. I think I went out in the end. You, I, I got a message did. at like two in the morning from you being like, that's a banger. And I was like, I know. <laughs> because you promised to do it and then you didn't again. And I'm still <laughs> waiting for it. <laughs> so I, I win. What age do you think you were when you became self-aware of your mental health for the first time and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? Some deep thinking going on. Probably. I, I don't think I probably thought about it until I was at least sort of 1920, really. I, I think wasn't something... I, I was obviously conscious of sort of mental health because the, there's so much information out there now and I think... Uh, I was aware of it, but I didn't really sort of think about it as applying to me because I don't think I had any sort of thing that really needed me to think about it until I sort of got into my 20s. Mm. Harry? Yeah, I think probably reasonably similar for me, probably like last year of sixth form and university, where it was more seeing it as, oh, it's not just a me problem. It's not all my fault. Mental health is like, if you're not feeling good, it is an illness, you know, like how is it any different to getting a sickness bug or a cold sometimes where you feel crap for a couple of months? And I think having that shift of blame is great. What things do you find in life that trigger your mental health? It could be things people might say to you. It could be a sound. It could be a sensation. It could be being in a certain social environment. Or have you not figured all of them out yet? Tom not validating me. Um... <laughs> it's coming up <laughs> no, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I think... After lockdown, really crowded spaces is something I've found. Gigs, fine, because it's a nice atmosphere. But I never used to be bothered with crowds now. But I think just because we haven't had the exposure to it for so long, that it does stress me out more than mm. it used to. So it's getting getting used to that sort mm. of thing again and seeing real life people. I think I'm still, yeah, trying to work it out. And I think it's definitely uh, very, I think a lot of it is based on reactions from other people. So if I'm sort of with friends and they don't laugh at all my jokes. Oh, I hate that. I when the like joke that. doesn't bang, or you have to explain the joke. Yeah. Oh, that's the worst. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe it was the joke. Maybe the joke was Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or just the joke. And you're just like, oh, that's so bad. Oh, why did I say mm. that? Oh. And Pixar. Pixar keeps hitting me right in the daddy issues as well, actually. Which films? <laughs> on No, I've not seen Onward yet. What was the last Pixar oh, film man. I watched? I watched the one with oh, what's the one with the Spanish guitar player kid? Yeah, I watched. Okay. I loved oh. Coco. Oh my god, that was so good. Yeah, I saw most of the last. And half I watched now. Soul. <laughs> that was really good. Yeah, loved Soul. Really good. Yeah, really yeah. Like Uppercut right to the fields. Mm. All of those films. <laughs> Can you tell me about the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health? So, who was it with? What did you say? And how did you feel afterwards? Did it feel like a big moment or a big? 
burden or weight had been lifted from your shoulders and it was a big release? Or did it feel like something quite insignificant, normalized and easy to do? I think for me, it was actually my mum. I'd sort of been uh, searching for a job to do for my, my year's placement I did at my university. And I sort of hadn't found one for a while. I'd been looking for ages. I've been living at home for a really long time, sort of getting a lot of rejections back. And I finally got one and that was all great. And I sort of came back the next Christmas. My mum was like, how are you feeling? Because you were really sort of depressed when you were last here looking for jobs. And it sort of hit me that I, I was. I hadn't thought about it, I hadn't processed anything about that. And, uh, you know, it was nice to sort of know that there were people that were conscious of my mental health more than I was and sort of able to sort of point that out to me. And it was, you know, it was sort of a bit eye-opening. That was probably the first time I'd ever sort of thought about mental health relating to me was having it. my mum go, you're better now because you weren't good. Mm. Harry, what about you? I think mine's a bit of a weird one. I think it was at a gig and from someone I just totally don't know asking what a song was about. And then just telling them and then being like, oh, yeah, that's mental health, you know, <laughs> like, and because again, like I said, I don't really, really think about it too much, um, especially when I'm busy. So I, yeah, I can't remember what song it was, but asking like, oh, what, what's that about? And then just talking about it with them. And I think that's probably like one oh, of my wow. first candid conversations about how, how did they was react? Feeling. Was it good? Yeah, it was, it was like, it was like a very casual chat and it was like, oh yeah, I get you, yeah. you know, I get it. It's a feeling I get too. It was which is oh, yeah, that's a nice moment. Nice. That's a nice moment. Was it Broken Machine? Oh, it was oh, Broken Machine. Great shout. Oh god, awful song. <laughs> awful song. Awful <laughs> song, but yeah, no. I remember having probably a very similar conversation about your know, what's it about, and you were just like, oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's, it makes you talk mm. about it, doesn't it? So yeah, absolutely. Which is good. What tools and methods do you use in your own lives to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have you found that have worked for you, and which ones that you've maybe tried but haven't? For me, I think. It obviously doesn't work for everyone at all, but I have found, you know, fresh air exercise if I'm all clammed up. <laughs> it's usually because I've spent the last sort of three days inside, you know, in a dark room and getting out, doing sport, especially like a team sport where you're interacting with people and using your brain for things that aren't related to what you're currently bogged down with. For me, that works an absolute treat and invaluable really for me. See, I tried the whole exercise thing in lockdown and I got in the best shape of my life. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And then lockdown went on so long, I then got completely out of shape again. <laughs> uh, and I was like, ah, my bother, my bother. <laughs> and I was like, so yeah, that's, that's not the one that works for me. I think like, like I mentioned earlier, I touched on it, just little things like we're on a rock hurtling through space at like a million miles per hour. It's crazy that we even exist. Oh, we've gone, um, we've gone, Brian Cox. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, if something weird but good happens, or like you have a stranger smiles at you or something, it's just those little things, like where they surmount to something a lot bigger eventually, mm. which is nice. I talk a lot on this podcast and with many guests about masculinity, boys, and I talk about two ideas: toxic masculinity and positive masculinity. Now. In my opinion, toxic masculinity does exist in certain circles, but I feel like sometimes it gets overused a little bit too much and maybe as a catch-all phrase for a lot of things maybe it doesn't apply to. I also talk about positive masculinity in the sense of maybe in a few more pods and maybe in a few more years, maybe I'm naive, but masculinity will just be positive masculinity. So how would you define either of those or both of those concepts? I, oh, I'm not, I'm not massively sure because... I said, like, especially with kind of like a very current 
well not very, a very like omnipresent father figure I've never been too sure what it is mm. you know and I to be in a way I think that's kind of been to my benefit yeah. apart from my granddad I was raised with my sisters my aunts my mum my granny so I've always been incredibly conscious of the needs of other genders and how they can be different and what we can do to make them feel safer mm. and better so I think it's one of those things I think you we experienced quite a lot at sixth form and where there was a very traditional kind of like lad mm. culture and seeing that and then just being like that's not really me that's not really something I get anymore so yeah I, I think it, I, I don't really understand it too much because I, I don't understand where it comes sure. from I mean much. there's no right or wrong answer to this either by the way it's a very broad question I always like asking it to see what guests come out with. Some guests say there's no such thing as toxic masculinity. Some guests say it's completely rampant and it's it's <laughs> everywhere. But, you know, it's, there's no right or wrong answer. And for like positive masculinity, some guests say it's like self-confidence and self-awareness and empathy and supporting others. Whereas other guests say that actually this is just good behaviours of being human beings and we shouldn't tie it to yeah. masculine or feminine, etc. What would you say to this, Tom? Yeah, I think toxic masculinity is definitely... Uh, I th- feel like uh, a problem that a lot of people go through where there's the expectation to act a certain way to do certain things especially not do certain things and I think I've personally been quite lucky where people I've been friends with and my family have always been let me do sort of things that uh, aren't necessarily masculine but I I know a lot of people that have experiences where maybe their families or, or friends have stopped them from doing things and I think where you sort of start putting things into a marked yeah, gender boxes, boxes yeah, I think yeah. it really can be damaging, especially for people that you know either don't really identify with a, a gender or identify with a gender that is different to the gender they were born with. I, I think now it, it, I feel like a lot of people are definitely being told you can't do this, and and it's in a, it's sort of the norm is almost to sort of tell people you have to act a certain way, even if it's not seen as like the laddie toxic masculine yeah thing. or just like normalizing um, gender nonconformity. you know you can be a very exactly, masculine yeah. girl you could be a very feminine boy you, you know you can be straight or gay or whatever you want exactly yeah. and I, I think as a society we are getting better but there i think i always sort of cite schools as the the worst places mm. on earth for any sort of test it as well yeah uh, if you want to test society society's things. current you know mm. status or civilization <laughs> school is the best place to test it <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's a horrible place still, and I think you know, regardless of experiences outside of school, I think for young people going through things like that, it's still a horrible, horrible mm. place, and something that I don't know. What yeah, we can no, hundred percent. No, it's, it's not. There's no. There's no one size fits all, is there? As a final question, boys, what more do we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life, feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health, if they want to do it. I think exactly what you're doing, having these amazing candid conversations and especially with people like artists and stuff that people can relate to that maybe, like I said, the performativity of social media, taking people away from that and then chatting to them, have the same worries as you and really normalising everything because nine times out of 10, someone else is feeling exactly what you're feeling and if you chat about it, you'll probably feel a little bit better. Tom, any final thoughts? Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's really important to be able to have chats with friends. And I think me and Harry have a really good friendship in that regard where we're very open and saying, 
if there is something that you need to talk about we're there and I feel like I'm not I don't know if everyone has that and I see quite a lot of good advertising campaigns that are sort of check in with your mates and I think that's just something that everyone needs to get better mm. at the fact that it's okay to not be okay mm. linking back to what I was saying about you wouldn't expect someone to be completely annoyed at them if they were ill from like a physical thing so it's the same mental it's the same sort of thing so if you're not feeling well or you're feeling really crap for a while that's fine talk about it like you don't have to beat yourself up about it because if you're not on a constant state of mental health it will fluctuate all the time so I think it's not beating yourself up about it when they're low and really appreciating it when it's high and on that note Harry and Tom from the Night Society thank you so much for coming on behind the mic thank you so much man really appreciate it and thanks for having us thank you so much Well, we have come to the end of this episode of Behind the Mic. I want to say a big thanks to Harry and Tom, aka the Night Society, for being my special guests on this episode and for letting me go behind the mic with them. Their single TV dinner we discuss will play us out and I'll put all of Night Society's streaming and social media links in the show notes. As always, I will sign us off by saying thank you to everyone who's tuned in to this episode. If you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on social media. Tell your friends, tell your work colleagues, tell your family about it. Spread the good news and the good word about Vent and the podcast. If you want to support us, you can write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Or you can support our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. You can also make a one-off donation if you don't want to subscribe to the Patreon. And the GoFundMe is in all of our channels. Stay tuned for the next episode of Behind the Mic. And remember, guys, it's always okay to vent. Never mind.